<laughs> look at Freeberg. He's like, this is so awkward. I can't wait. He's got, you literally brought popcorn, didn't I'm you? I'm just watching you the show. Fucker. You brought popcorn. He's like, I want to see round three. I have nothing to say today. I'm just going to sit here and watch. I, I brought popcorn. I got my uh, chili roasted pistachio nuts. I'm going to sit back and enjoy the J. Cal sacks. Let your winners ride. Rain Man David Sacks. Are we really going to do this as the top story? I mean, this is the third time we've tried to do this story. Do we give the background sacks or no? We wouldn't have had to do it over and over again if you didn't act so hysterical. There we go. The first one you killed. No, you killed it. No, the first oh, one no, you the killed. First one, yeah, because it wasn't even on the docket and it wasn't, it wasn't even newsworthy. Okay, and the second one I killed. Because you came across like a stark raving lunatic. I spiked it the second time because I was so infuriated by your cavalier attitude towards it. What are you worried about my attitude for? Why don't you just focus on making your own good points? <laughs> Here's the thing. Oh, yes. I was so correct. <laughs> I was so correct. The two of you. Let him, let him go, Chamath. Let him go. <laughs> you guys got popcorn? Let's hear this idiot try to blame his own hysteria on me. <laughs> you said that January 6th was overblown. And of course. No, I said it was a disgrace. I said it was an embarrassment. It was an embarrassment to the country. I said it was wrong. But you want to inflate it. You're, in, you're engaging in, in classic Washington threat inflation. Nope. And, um, and there's two problems with that. One is you're going to take your eye off the ball of, of the real issues facing the country, like inflation, the economy, and economic anxiety, like COVID, like crime, like schools. I mean, these are the issues that Americans care about, not you know a riot that happened over a year ago. And if you and the Democrats keep talking about this and focus on it, on MSNBC, to the exclusion of the issues that really matter, uh, I'll see you in November because you're going to get slaughtered in this midterm election. It's going to be a landslide. But the other problem with it is with this threat inflation is that it justifies the expansion of surveillance powers and prosecutorial powers by the Justice Department, by the you know by by the by the Justice Department, and other branches of our government who want to basically go after you know this the so-called domestic terrorism. That will lead to an infringement on civil liberties, just like the expansion of those agencies did after 9-11. And so I think we should all be like concerned about it. Now, look, are these Oath Keepers a bunch of idiots? Yeah, there were 11 Oath Keepers at that rally. They broke into the wait Capitol. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're they saying, should be prosecuted. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You're saying an old fat guy with an eye patch <laughs> <laughs> and a hat exactly. that says Oath Keeper Lifetime Member is not credible to you? Exactly. I mean, look, this is, th these guys are, they're, they're not unlike the Antifa, right? You know, uh, people in Portland who are trying to burn down buildings or, uh, or Chase Boudin's parents who are domestic terrorists. I mean, yeah, this is a small number of knuckleheads who broke into the Capitol. They should be prosecuted. They're, they're guilty of, of saying this leader is saying intemperate things. But was this going to be a coup to take over the Capitol? I don't, I don't think so. Okay, let, let and me if you want to focus on that to the exclusion of the real issues facing the country, like I said, this landslide in November, this red wave is going to be even bigger. Just to your point about my focus uh, every week here on the number one tech podcast in the world and on the number six tech podcast in the world this week in startups, I focus on all of those issues. But let's read because uh, we can chew gum and walk at the same time. Let's read. What happened on Thursday, the FBI arrested 11 members of the Oath Keepers on 
sedition charges and the House committee subpoenaed Facebook, Google, Reddit and Twitter after insufficient responses to the January 6 riots or insurrection, whichever term you prefer. The leader uh, of the Oath Keepers, which is an organization that claims over 30,000 members primarily in the military and police. Okay, well, hold on a second. If this was their big moment to stage a coup and take over the government, why were only 11 of the 30,000 there? The 11 were indicted, David. Uh, there were How many were there? Well, we don't know yet. But uh, <laughs> last week, you said, uh, they, they, last week, they, you said there was no coordinated attack. And now we have proof. That no, there no, was. no, no, that's not what I said. The, okay. you, look, you, you can't veto the segment from last week and then try to claim that I said certain All right, well, things. Let me just finish. Can I get through the story or sure. are you going to keep interrupting? My God. Okay. Quote from the you, you're you're complaining about interruption. Okay. That's another interruption. That's may may I finish black. it without before interruption or would you like to just keep monologuing? What are you reading? Why don't you just give us well, the link every so week that the I audience can just the go story? get the actual story. Yeah, that, that's what I'm trying to do, but you keep interrupting. So here we go. While certain Oathkeeper members and affiliates inside Washington, D.C. breached the Capitol grounds and buildings, others remained stationed just outside the city in QRF teams. These are quick response teams uh, that had weapons and they transported firearms into Washington, D.C. In, and these in support uh, operations were aimed at using force to stop the law full transfer of presidential power, according to our Department of Justice, which is uh, majority Republican, obviously, law enforcement skews no, Republican. Not. Yes, it is. Are you kidding me? A Jim portion Comey, of the Oath Keepers communication occurred on signal. You think, you think signal. The FBI is are you going to keep interrupting me? Oh, my God. Can I just read two sentences, Dave? Get a taste of your own medicine, pal. Okay, fine. Signal is an encrypted chat app that's not supposed to have any backdoors, but obviously there are some plant. Here are some of Rhodes's comments. We aren't getting through this without a civil war. Too late for that. Prepare your mind, body and spirit. It will be a bloody and desperate fight. We're going to have to fight. This cannot be avoided. If we want to make the January 6th stuff relevant, first of all, let me just say, I see that primarily as a media story. What happened happened. Obviously, it was a disgrace and embarrassment of black eye for the country. I'm not supporting or defending anyone. I th tend to think these Oath Keepers, um, it was not like a super organized concerted effort to take over the government. It, it's somewhere, it, it's basically a bunch of loudmouths who, you know, engage in a riot. Maybe there was more planning and preparation. Fine. The court case will bear it out. And if they can prove that it was what you said, it was great. Let them go to jail. I have no desire to defend them. But I also think that in the grand scheme of things, this whole thing's been blown completely out of proportion. I mean, if you watch MSNBC, it's all January 6th all the time. And you know, if Democrats are going to focus on this issue for the next 10 months, and you know who Roger Stone was photographed on a sidewalk with, which was the big story the other day, this red wave in November is going to be an even bigger wave. I'm just telling you right now, because it's not what the average voter in the country cares about. I think you're right about that. I think you're right about I'll that. I'll agree with that. I think, you know, MSNBC is focused on this and Fox is focused on fake voter fraud. And I, we've been pretty clear here that none of us agree with either of the extremes of media coverage. I do think this is an issue worth Wait, what, resolving what fake quickly. voter fraud are you talking about? The, the guy who, who's obsessed right now with voter fraud is Biden. He just gave a speech, a very intemperate speech, saying that if you don't support his new voting rights acts, that you're on the side of Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. There was some political calculus there. He had to do that because he was also trying to basically bolster the ability to get this, you know, filibuster thing passed in the Senate. So he he basically had to play a relatively weak hand and and, you know, Again, what happened again legislatively is that his own party said no enough. In this case, it was Kristen Sinema who basically said no. None of this. Right. Is well, Sinema Mansion won't support amending the filibuster. So yeah. this thing was DOA. We we said it was a DOA when, when the Build Back Better bill collapsed. We said they were going to try and pivot 
to voting rights to change the subject, even though it was DOA. But there is something that Biden could do or could have done uh, that I think would be a bipartisan reform, which is to reform the Electoral Count Act. I mean, what happened in November, if you're concerned about Trump and, you know, the subversion of the potential to subvert the election and the way he tried to influence Pence to stop the counting of the electors, if you're concerned about all of that, there is a fix for that, which is the Electoral Count Act of 1887. It's completely antiquated. Obviously, it's been around for over 100 years. There is bipartisan support for fixing that. The Wall Street Journal editorial page has come out for Explain months. Explain what saying, that is to the audience. Well, it's just a it's just a it's a law that that governs how these electors in the electoral college get counted up and certified, so that you know the election gets certified. So, and David Brooks had that piece that that Jamal shared in the New York Times, which is the problem we have right now is not in the actual voting; it's in the if you're worried about what happened in this past November, it's in the certification, not the voting. And you know what Brooks was writing about is there's a lot of social science saying that. You know, a lot of these rules that Democrats and Republicans are really focused on around the convenience of the election don't really influence the number of people who vote. People who vote want, people who want to vote, vote. People who don't, don't. You know, we're getting hung up on the wrong thing, which is, you know, these voter ID laws. What really matters is the certification of the Electoral College. And you could find, Biden could find, I think there's a number of Republicans who would support a clarification of that law and updating of it. So, that what potentially could have happened in, you know, uh, in January, if Pence had gone along with this plan to basically reject the accounting of the electors. I mean, everyone understood what, what that, that, think that was of, just ceremonial, right? That what, was yeah, what not, do you think of that plan? What did you think of Trump's plan? I think that Trump had a right to air his grievances in court. But once the court threw out his claims and rejected them, and once the Supreme Court denied certiorari, it was over. It was over. The Supreme Court has the final word in our democracy about legal matters. And so, no, Pence never had the authority or the ability under the Electoral Count Act to reject the counting of the electors. That whole process is ceremonial. But, but the mere fact that this isn't even, even an issue suggests that we should fix it. We should go back and fix the Electoral Count Act of 1887. So, and look, you could, Biden could have gotten 60 votes for that, you know? I think that was very he can, doable. He can, get, he can get votes for that. He can also get votes to... Um stop uh, the insider trading of members of uh, Congress. He could get right. that done too. So why, why, isn't he focused, why isn't he focused on things where he can actually get a bipartisan majority? His one big legislative success as president has been the infrastructure bill where he got a bunch of Republican support. Which is a pretty big win, yeah. Those are the types of issues he should be focused on. And instead, he's giving these you know, speeches uh, saying that anyone who disagrees with the progressive agenda on voting rights is basically you guys George Wallace speech? or Bull Connor. Did you guys hear his speech the other day on CNBC about COVID? I mean, he was so incoherent. It was kind of scary. It feels like he's in cognitive. The cognitive decline is, you know, I voted for the guy. Anything to get Trump out of office, I thought that was an existential risk. But man, he is cognitively declining quickly. I mean, I think the craziest thing about COVID was this Rachel Walensky interview. I mean, like, why does it take two years into a pandemic to tell us what we kind of anecdotally knew? But if we had known up front or sooner, we would have completely. This. Rachel Walensky does an interview. She's the head of the CDC. And she said, well, it turns out that 75% of all the deaths uh, because of COVID were people that suffered from at least four, four. comorbidities, at least four, not three, not two, not, not one. Yeah. It wasn't all. It was, I think it was a subset defined by, it might've been like vaccinated deaths or something like that. It was, it was one study, but yes, that was basically 
the conclusion. Absolutely. Is significant comorbidities among people who died. And so if we if we had known that, don't you think, I mean, Friedberg, you, you tell me, but wouldn't we have just changed our response to just mask and just kind of like start living our normal lives and people with four comorbidities or people at a certain Stay age home. or immunocompromised should have stayed home. And we would be in a very different situation. So, you know, I mean, I understand, Jason, that Biden didn't, the last few speeches have been a little tight. You know, I mean, I think, look, the, the Quinnipiac poll, poll then Nick, you can post it. I mean, look, his ratings are just plummeting, plummeting. I mean, it's down to Trump levels, right? Every week. And so he is definitely searching for a handful of wins. I don't think he strategically found the right ones. He could have done something on certifying the electoral college. He could certainly do something right now on insider trading laws for uh, members of Congress. But instead, we're focusing on all these random things. But anyway, sorry. He can't get the insider trading thing past Pelosi. But, 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 but yeah, I think it is something that would get a huge bipartisan majority. Look, she's going to lose anyway, so he might as well just throw under the bus. <laughs> You're right. This is about his political salvation over hers. By the way, you guys saw this. I, I mentioned this in the group chat. Someone floated the trial balloon of dumping Kamala Harris and replacing her with Liz Cheney. This is how bad things have gotten for the Democrats. Well, I mean, uh, they we were, were trying to, a- they floated a trial balloon of, of Biden Cheney in 24. Well, a crossover ticket. I, we talked about this on the, uh, for a couple of years in private and poker. I thought, I think a crossover ticket is what the country needs to kind of get back to center. And I know it's a crazy concept and it's a 1% chance, but I, I kind of like the crossover, but things have gotten so bad for the Democrats now that and I, I sort of said Sachs floated this um, or pre-floated it. We had a little debate on the Twitter, but Sa- I don't know if you remember two or three episodes ago, Sachs said, hey, listen, there's going to be a new appreciation for Clinton. And not 10 days later, the Wall Street Journal and a bunch of people are floating Hillary coming back to run. Um, well, so I, I think said you, Bill Clinton. I didn't mention Hillary. I know that. But I think you <laughs> pre- either you are in your star chamber and doing a pre-float on all in. So then the backups in the can then, you know, pump hillary as that or it's just people are listening to you and you're that influential what what i'm what i'm proposing is that biden engage in clintonian uh, by which i mean bill clintonian uh triangulation which is he does not have the votes in congress to enact a progressive agenda he should be looking for bipartisan wins he did with the infrastructure bill he could do with this entire trading thing he could do it on the electoral count act these are things that would be you know, progress. Yeah. China policy. And importantly, momentum. Momentum going into 20, 2024. And, and maybe good for Americans. Like, I mean, his China policy, the fact that he came out with a statement on the Uyghurs, I thought it was very strong. You know, it's one of the stronger things he did, but it's not coming up in the polls. And I think the whole Republicans interesting nobody, nobody cares about again is no, 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 nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You you bring it up because you really what? care. And I think what that's do you mean nice that you cares? care. The rest of us don't care. I'm just well, telling you, you a very care? hard. Wait, wait, I'm telling you, you very, personally don't care. I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Okay, of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Okay, oh, of all the things that I care about, it is below my line. Disappointing. Well, we. I think people, if you if you explain to them what's happening to the Uyghurs in China, they care, but it's not top of mind for them. That's not what's caring. top of mind right now. Is they go to the grocery store and, and the shelves are empty. Sure, that I care yeah. about. Yeah. I, I care about the fact that our economy could turn on a dime if China invades Taiwan. I care about that. I care about climate change. You know, I care about a bunch of, I care about America's crippling and, you know, decrepit in healthcare infrastructure. But if you're asking me, that, do I care about a segment of a class of people in another country? Not until we can take care of ourselves, will I prioritize them over us? And I think a lot of people believe that. 
And I'm sorry if that's a hard truth to hear. But every time I, I say that I care about the Uyghurs, I'm really just lying if I don't really care. And so I'd rather not lie to you and tell you the truth. It's not a priority for me. And my response to that is I think it's a sad state of affairs when human rights as a concept globally, you know, falls beneath, you know, tactical and strategic issues that we have to have we need that's to have another a luxury watermark. belief that's another luxury belief i don't believe believing in the the human declaration of human rights that eleanor roosevelt it's a luxury belief. nations i don't think it's a luxury belief to believe that all humans should have a basic set of human rights i that think it's a luxury belief right. and the reason it. i think it's a luxury belief is we don't do enough domestically to actually express that view in real tangible ways so until we actually clean up our own house the idea that we step outside of our borders with you know with with us sort of like morally virtue signaling about somebody else's human rights track record is deplorable. Look at the number of black and far brown men deplorable. that are far from deplorable. Look at the number of black and brown men that are incarcerated for for absolutely ridiculous crimes. I don't know if you saw this past week, but there is a person that was released from jail because he couldn't even be protected in jail because in some of these cells, they run these fight clubs inside of Rikers Island that are basically tacitly endorsed by the corrections officers that don't do anything. And the talk difference... So hold on, Jason. So if you want to talk about the human rights of people, I think we have a responsibility to take care of our own backyard first. First. And then we can go and basically morally tell other people how they should be running their own countries. The difference is, Chamath, saying what you just said in China or Saudi Arabia would put you in jail and get you 100 lashes and you would be tortured for a decade. We here in the United States are far from perfect. We still have the death penalty, which is against the United Declaration of Human Rights, which we signed, which Eleanor Roosevelt created in the UN. And we propagated as Americans around the world. We started that Chamath. And we can have these discussions about being better in this country. And the whataboutism that you're proposing is so um, disproportional to the equivalent of the Holocaust going on, we're talking about a million Uyghurs in concentration camps right now, to talk about what we have here that we need to fix and compare it to that, or to Saudi Arabia, whipping bloggers and throwing gay people off roofs for being gay. The, these two things are not morally comparable. They are very far and we need to have open discussions and talk about human rights all the time. Because if we do not talk about it all the time, then your position, which is I don't have time for that, I want to solve my problems then gives the green light to dictators everywhere that nobody's watching. That's we need to true. have vigilance. And, that, and that's what I find. And I, I think we wait, need wait, to wait, work hold on, on a second. your that, position. That, that's not what I said. And that's not true. You said you can't get up for it. Yeah. So tell me how, problem. Are, you, are you saying that the, the situation with the Uyghurs uh, is the same as the Holocaust? People who are Jewish are making that comparison. You never no, no, make no, a Holocaust I'm ask, comparison. I'm asking you, I think it is speaking, comparable. There are uh, upwards of a million people in a concentration camp right now. This is getting to numbers that are actually comparable. It is actually a valid comparison. You're saying there are a million people in a concentration camp? Th that is the numbers that human rights organizations are saying. Between 300,000 and a million people are incarcerated right now, being tortured, raped, and in doing forced sterilization, re-education, and when they're released, are being tracked in ghettos. And so are Jewish you saying people the entire are bringing world? this up. Hold on. Are you saying, the you're saying the entire world has basically decided that that doesn't matter? You just said you can't get up for it. I'm talking about you specifically. But who is bestie. getting up? Well, who is getting up for it? I am very up on it. I talk about it all the time, okay. every week. What about the US government? What are they doing about it? The Biden just said we are going to do a ban and we are going to uh, sanction companies that do business in that region. So Apple and, and uh, Tesla? I 
think there will be increased pressure on all companies that are engaging in China over well, human it's, rights. It's, it's goods that are sourced from those areas, right? Correct. Yes. It's and not I doing business there. It's, it's, it's if your supply chain comes from that area. Correct. Then and it's a first it's So a kind first of like, step. we won't we won't buy Nazi goods, but we're, we'll sell our iPhones into Nazi Germany. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to have a discussion about this, you know, it's how do we disengage from China? We've had this discussion here. How what amount of time will it take to disengage from countries that have brutal dictatorships that are committing human rights atrocities? But again, my look, look, I, I think I'm spending a lot of time and money actually trying to fortify America's supply chain. You guys know about some of the things that I'm Absolutely, doing. It's I'm, fantastic. Not, I'm, I'm not doing that from a moral perspective. I'm doing that from a practical capitalist perspective. I think the jobs are better served for Americans. And I think that we should have the ability to build our own businesses, just like China has the right to do for themselves without the risk of these things being undercut by policies that we don't understand, which is effectively what you do when you outsource your supply chain to countries where you're not 100% aligned with them. Yeah, and they're dictatorships. So I, again, I'm not, I, I, I'm not even sure that, that, it, that China is a dictatorship the way that you want to call it that. Again, I think Communist that- Communist country that's in the name. Look, you have to understand, Jason, that there are a set of checks and balances here on China that, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that I have the moral absolutism to judge China. And I would say that when NATO is silent, the United Nations is silent, all of Western Europe is silent, and America is effectively silent, that this issue may be small data points being extrapolated in a way to create a narrative that may be not be true. And if it is true, Jason, there is a responsibility for those body politics to do something because that is the early warning signal that the rest of the world uses to say, okay, hold on, let me reprioritize my list of things. So, yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is I am not going to be an armchair journalist on this topic, nor am I going to be the armchair human rights advocate for the world, because I just don't know. I can focus on the things that I know about, build the things that I know about. And if something really does get red light status, then other parties will do something. And again, I just want to be clear. NATO is silent. United Nations is silent. America is silent. A press release doesn't change the actual technical posture on these topics. Okay. If that if your position is that human rights matters to you, if government large government organizations uh, or politicians uh, give you the green light to care about it, that's fine. I care about it intrinsically every day. Great. I'm fine with you doing that. I thought there was a segue there to talk about the Ray Dalio thing that Freeberg cares about. I mean, this is I mean, this debate that you're having between kind of realism and idealism and foreign policy is sort of what Dalio tackles, right, Freeberg? Look, I mean, it sounds to me like there's, um, let's just say, a red herring. There always needs to be, as Chamath points out, a narrative on framing our enemy when, you know, you're running out of land. I mean, you guys saw this, uh, was it a journal article or a New York Times article that came out today that U.S. intelligence revealed that Putin had actually uh, put some actors into the eastern Ukraine uh, to set up for uh, a reason to have a response and therefore an excuse to invade the Ukraine. So he was trying to create a bit of a fireworks show to give him an excuse. We always need a narrative that we can sell to uh, our, uh, you know, our, our, our citizens. And so, you know, there, there's not going to be a lot of you know, patting on the back of China right now. As we've talked about, there is this, you know, overarching multi-hundred-year economic cycle, you know, call it geopolitical cycle, that the United States and China are about to clash on. 
And in order for them to clash effectively, we need to get the narrative right, which is to paint them as the bad guy and to make things evil. And look, I mean, you, you may take your ethical framework and say that they are bad, and you may be able to take other parts of your ethical framework and looking objectively, call some countries that you consider good bad as well, depending on what story you want to tell yourself and what story you want to be told. And I think that's what's going on and will continue to go on for a long period of time. And this, this weaker thing, as, as Chamath pointed out, how do you measure on an absolute basis human rights? I don't think that there's a way to do so. Whether it's one person getting tortured publicly in a street or 100,000 people being suppressed economically and not being able to, to get jobs, it's hard to say what is appropriate, what is not, what is evil, what is not. At the end of the day, we, we create narratives and that narrative allows the bigger picture to kind of play itself out. And I think that's what's going on largely. And I don't think we're going to hear a lot of good news about China for the next decade from any politician in the United States or anyone that wants to defend our political and economic interests globally, which are certainly being challenged by China right now. So I don't know. That's my diatribe about the Dalio. Look, Dalio obviously does a great job of kind of simplifying and eloquently stating what's going on. Um, but I think this is one of many, many manifestations of it. You need only read what the UN, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, The Guardian, The New York Times, you know, th this is not up for question. Why do you think you're so wound up about this and you're not wound up about what's going on in Somalia? Oh, no. I or you're not wound up about what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Or, oh, you're, no, not, or you're not I, I wound up about hold on, hold on, what's hold on. going on in Eastern Ukraine. Hold on a second. There are human rights violations all over the world. I comment on, on them and I have commented on them for decades since I worked at Amnesty International, Amnesty International, which is where I started my career. I've been passionate about this since the age of 18 or 19. When I worked at Amnesty International, you said that you cannot uh, grade these things, right? Uh, you just said like, it's hard to compare these things. And this is a problem. Like, you can actually do that. There are human rights violations, like freedom of speech, which, you know, is a great aspiration. But we would say torture, murder, systematic rape, and sterilization are more intense and horrific than just freedom of speech. So if you look at Hong Kong, when they shut down Apple News, that's one level of human rights, right? People have lost their ability but for you're, free you're, speech. Again, you're telling stories. Hundreds of, these are not stories, these are facts. Apple News was shut down. You were telling a fact about a particular, a particular set of experiences that are particularly harming a set of people. Let yes. me give you another fact. In the United States, where we have a population of, let's be generous and say 400 million people, 2.3 million, 340 million, 340 million Americans, 2.3 million of whom are incarcerated. Absolutely. In China, with a population of 1.4 billion, 1.7 million Chinese are incarcerated. Absolutely something we have to deal where with. Where is human rights being violated on an absolute basis? It's a very difficult conversation to use facts and figures because at the end of the day, there's a lot of data that can be pointed the other way. And so it all comes down to narrative. And that narrative always has an objective, which is what are you trying to get people to believe? And what are you trying to get them to get behind and get to do? Yes. And what are you trying to justify? Yes. And the well, actions... Freeberg, they don't have a drug problem over there because they killed all the drug dealers. Mal put them up against the wall and shot them. So, you know... <laughs> they just send their fentanyl here. <laughs> exactly. that's, fair, that's fair enough. But I'm just saying, like, look, and, and, and it's, it's a very good point, which is you can actually take the data and you can slice it and tell different stories around it. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to say there's good and there's evil that we have to go and attack. And, and that is what is... Oh, going. I never said attack. I never said attack. I didn't say invade China over this. And I didn't say invade Saudi Arabia. I think we should talk increase about Increase the temperature, raise the temperature. No, right? I did Make not say that either. If you want to know what I think should happen, put you can political ask me. pressure on them, right? I think when people are involved 
in torture, murder, rape, and sterilizing people, that there should be economic and disengagement that occurs as a first step. And that that is why when people in our circles in venture capital take money from somebody who murdered a journalist, Mohammed bin Salim, uh, MBS from uh, Saudi Arabia, we should disengage from a country like that. I believe that that is what we should do. And I believe okay, people so like us, I believe people like us who are capital allocators and creators and who are influencers should be talking about human rights all the time. And we should be familiar with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and we should read what's in it and we should aspire to hit those notes in our Here's country and everywhere else. And this Me Tooism, I'm sorry, this you know equivalency problem that you guys keep bringing up, that is a trap. That is an intellectual trap because there is no equivalency from putting a, detaining a million people, putting hundreds of thousands of them and torturing them to what's happening in the United States where we wrote the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and where we can have conversations about it. If you tried to have the conversation we are can having here, with you? we would all be tortured in Saudi Arabia. We would all be tortured and detained inside of China. I just think that there's a very dangerous thing that you're doing, which is you are ranking and which is essentially assigning some sort of, let's just call it economic value to those things that you just, just described, torture, rape, forced sterilization. But I think then you're ignoring how do you actually economically rank systemic racism in the United States? What happens in our inner school system, inner city school system? What happens to black and brown men? What happens to the families of those people? What happens to how the lobbies basically break down the healthcare system? I, all I'm saying is, Jason, if you take your argument to the extreme, you start to get into all these areas of gray where it's impossible to assign economic realities to those things so that you can actually rank and rate. That's why I do economic? think that- Yeah, because what, what you're- What do you mean by we're, we're talking about You're numerically existence. ranking these things. No, no, no. I, didn't, I never use a numerical. I'm Jason, just saying one is proportionally different. Sure. I'm not putting economic. I never use the term. If those really bad things happen 10 times and these kind of bad things happen 10,000 10, times, which one's worse? I think if you asked anybody who is in a Uyghur prison being sterilized, tortured, I'm not, I'm and raped, asking you if they which would one's rather worse? be, yes. I mean, you could, you could 10, actually do this test. Jason, I'm asking you a question. If 10 people, 10 Uyghurs were raped or forced sterilized yes. versus 10 million black men falsely incarcerated, which one is worse? Yeah. This is not the way to do the calculus. You could do it on an individual basis. You can look at an individual inside of a prison being tortured and an individual living in the United States, every single person who is inside of that torture chamber being raped, being sterilized would say, I would absolutely love to come to America. That's why everybody wants to come to this country and live in a free democracy where they can speak freely, they can practice whatever religion they want and not be tortured. And what you're doing by adding up all the tiny pain and suffering that we have here in America and then you know, trying to conflate that with these horrific acts, you have to look at exactly how horrific these are on an individual basis, just like we did with George Floyd, we see George Floyd happen. That is something that is absolutely worth being outraged about at a higher level, right? You have to stop for a second and say, Oh, my God, this has to be resolved. We can do these two things at the same time. We can refine our education system. No, here George Floyd, George Floyd actually the Uyghurs being sterilized. I think George Floyd proves my point because there's been innumerable number of black men that have been murdered with nary a thing that's ever happened in the United States. But it happened in an exact moment where the sum of all of these other things that happened before had just compounded to a point where the whole thing spilled over and yeah, enough people decided to that. basically say the sum total of this damage yeah. 
now is the equivalent of a very meaningful human rights you, violation. You can work on both these things at the same time, is my point. And, and this, and this, you're basically giving a pass by, by kind of conflating these two things in my mind. You can work on both these issues. You could want to stop abhorrent torture and murder and rape while wanting to make our justice system better, while wanting to make our education system better. You don't have to pick one, Chamath. I think you do, actually. No, you do not. We could absolutely create- There's nothing I can do about the Uyghurs in China. Zero. Absolutely there is. You could not capital allocate to regions or to companies that are engaging- but I, I don't. I don't have any Xinjianese okay, startups perfect. asking me for money. And if you do see one, you could do that. And you could also speak I up can't about because it. they can't get out of China. What are you talking about? Do you take money from exist. Saudi Arabia? No. Okay, I, great. So you made a more and did you make a moral decision about that? No. Okay. If you did get offered a billion dollars, would you take it from them? And by the way, to be honest, there's a bunch of my companies that have been supported by folks who have taken money from them. And I know and that's a problem. When I look, what, well, what's a bigger problem? Is it that the solution that these guys are that they're designing for mental health or diabetes or you know housing or whatever it is this startup does when they take money from SoftBank or whomever? All of a sudden, they should be canceled and not be able to do that. I didn't say cancel. Just take the money from somebody different. Nobody said canceled. Where? I, I don't know. Co two, pick another firm. Goldman. I don't know who doesn't take Saudi money. So should the should the United States create a program where whenever you get a where you ever get a term sheet from SoftBank or anybody with money from didn't say that PIF, you should just be able to go and redeem it for some somebody else's money. I never said that either. I think each individual, a capital allocator like yourself and a CEO, should make what they believe is a morally right decision. Well, they voted and they don't care about this issue. They're voting okay, with their and, dollars. And I'm advocating every day. that people should care about human rights and they should care about who they make money for. I know I'm a lone voice. I know I'm a lone voice, but I believe you should care about no, who no, no. you're making I'm not money saying, for. Jason, I'm just saying something very subtle. I'm not saying that what you believe is wrong. In fact, I think it's beautiful and wholeheartedly right. What I'm saying is when everybody else tries to nod their head and agree with you in the moment, they're just morally virtue signaling in a luxury belief that they themselves don't exhibit, they don't make any changes towards, and it's largely because they don't believe that this is an issue. And I'm just putting it on the table as it just is true based on everybody's behavior, maybe other than you. I agree with you. But everybody else is voting. I, I would like to change everybody's behavior. And I think you can offer your opinion and maybe yeah. you will change some people's minds. I, I'm sure there are some people listening here and I know there are some founders who would not take money from SoftBank and would not take money from Saudi Arabia. And I know there are some capital allocators who will not take money from dictatorships. I think that you're you're also forgetting that there's there has been as 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 it seems again from very very far away looking in a lot of things that they have been able to do that is really constructive. You know, they've actually created some pretty decent ties to Israel. Um they've actually started to create a path to normalize normalize relations in the Middle East. You know, they've organized against what could be the real threat there, which is you know, a, a, a nuclear empowered Iran. So just to put things in perspective, Jason, it's kind of like you have to look at the totality of the situation. Again, in the United States today, if you just looked at that one simple thing, you can cherry pick all kinds of reasons why many other companies shouldn't expect shouldn't accept American capital, because you know, we don't really exactly have our shit together. either. proportion of these issues is the issue. I think, I think it, what, what Jamath is saying is the world, the world is complicated. I mean, we had so under the, the previous president, they said there could never be uh like a peace in the Middle East or uh, a deal between Israel and, and Arab powers. And there was the Doha agreement where you had three Arab states signing peace treaties with Israel and Saudi Arabia allowing flights between Saudi Arabia and Israel for the first time. And that's all because of MBS. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about how King Salman actually was holding MBS back on this because 
you know, he's from part of the previous generation who was backing the Palestinians. And MBS just wants to move forward and actually get a deal done with Israel. And if the Palestinians won't make it, then he's willing to move forward without them. And this is not me saying this. This is the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. We need to dig up that piece. So all I'm saying, look, what happened with that journalist was absolutely wrong. But clearly, like foreign relations is very complicated, especially in the Middle East. And it's not clear that like net net. Saudi Arabia probably just did the one wrong thing, which is that every country engages in extrajudicial killings. They just got caught. Right, because I don't think it's fair to well, say they that also torture. They also killed a journalist. I think that Americans have done that. Okay, we've done that as well. A it's journalist, been well absolutely. I don't think no, you no. actually have any idea of the extent of what we have done during the course of these You're, wars in all of these countries. I don't think you know. Well, I don't nobody, think I know. Yeah. So by saying, and no, I think, we, and I think that the tip of the spear, nobody knows if we chopped up a journalist who criticized. Well, do you the know president. who was in Al Ghraib, Al Abu Ghraib? Do you really know? Do you know of Abu all Ghraib, the other one of the worst one of the worst things we ever did? And one of the things we need to aspire to do better. Jason, we've gone blundering blood around blood. the Middle East for 20 years now in Afghanistan. We, hold stuff on, we supported done. warlords in Afghanistan who we were allies with who were raping young boys. I mean, this was like a giant uh, series of articles in the New York Times. Oliver in North, Libya, Iran in, Contra. I mean, we've been doing this since the 80s. But even more recently in Libya, we, we basically got rid of uh, Gaddafi and plunged that whole country into civil war and it's never recovered from it. So look, I, I actually, Jason, I, I'm somewhere in between. I actually agree with your idealism. I'm, my mind's still blown that you actually work for Amnesty International. But I just think that the world is more complicated than that. And sometimes we have to make choices. And, and the, the, the thing that concerns me is that that idealism that you're citing has become a prelude and a pretext for war in the, over the last 20 years. And we keep. And to be clear, I'm not advocating we, we keep go to war. around the globe, getting into these conflicts Libya, Syria, Iraq, uh, you Afghanistan. Know I'm, you know what I'm good has that done us? Yeah, I, you know I'm anti war. You know I'm anti war. You, you know I'm not advocating for invading places. I'm advocating that we speak up when we see Saudi Arabia take a blogger, uh, Rafi Badawi. Everybody did. Being, I mean, that was universally condemned. But but the question is, at the end of the day- Who is being caned for writing blog posts. What's and our alternative in Saudi Arabia? Who, who's our alternative there? We don't get to pick and choose who the leaders of these countries that are, doesn't mean, That doesn't mean- I'm talking specifically about entrepreneurs, capital allocators. That doesn't mean we need to engage in business and building their chip stack. If you want the sternly worded press release, you just got it from Biden. Hopefully, it, it's, it peaks, it, it satisfies, it quenches your thirst because- the only oh, other I solution- I want to see us talking about. Actually, if you want to know what I want, I want to see the three of you speak up for human rights. That's what I would like to see. I think that human rights in the United States is way more important to me than human rights anywhere else in the globe. Okay. And I think that we have an abysmal track record of taking care of colored men and women in this country. I, and I don't disagree. And so I have zero patience and tolerance for white men blathering on about shit that happens outside your own backyard. Fix your own inside backyard because you guys hold on. Human rights here as well. Hold on, because you guys are the ones. And you do that not are, get to diminish me for being white. No, I understand, but I'm saying that you are uniquely if in a position of power me. in a way that the rest of us are not. And so, when you guys clean up the inside, then we can go and fix the outside. Yeah, I believe we can do both. I I believe we can do the same thing at the same time. We could speak about human rights here. We could speak about it in Saudi Arabia. We could speak about it in China, and we could talk about the same thing. We can talk about all the human rights issues from freedom but of speech. You don't. 
to murder. I do. I do constantly. Look oh, really? at my Twitter well, feed. If you care so much about journalists, why haven't you spoken up in favor of Snowden and Assange the way that Glenn Greenwald has? Of Julian Assange? Assange and Snowden. Read Glenn Greenwald's reporting on yeah, this, I, these I topics. Yeah, I think that we need to get to the bottom of both of those. I, in, in either case, we don't know get the, the full information. It. You've acted with complete certainty on Twitter saying that these guys are traitors and should be locked up in U.S. prisons. Oh, no, no. I, I think we don't know. I don't think we know who they're working for. Well, why haven't and you spent the time to learn? No, well, I mean, it, it is a black box in that case. We don't know in both of those cases what the backstory is. I do think I do have a but nuanced you know position about on what's that. Going on, you know about what's going on with the Uyghurs because you read a New York Absolutely. Times article? It's, 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 it, so why don't you read people, the New York Times article about Snowden no, no, and we have had people Julian who have, we have We have people who have defected and been on 60 Minutes who were in those prisons. You believe what you want to believe. No, you, you literally can believe somebody who escaped from the prison. You can believe them. Yes. With, when it comes to Julian Assange, I, I, I don't know what to believe exactly because he released all those data dumps and he didn't do it properly like a journalist where he vetted the information with Snowden. I'm more inclined to think that he was a good actor and I think it's a very nuanced position. So if you want to try to paint me as like not knowing everything about every uh, human rights violation in the world, every nuanced position of a leaker, that's correct. I don't know everything about everybody, but I I'm do know. I'm going to take that position. I don't know anything about any of these things, which is why I choose to focus on the things that I can control. And I want to believe that I want to improve my own backyard. Which I think is absolutely great. And I think you can add an end there, which is you should be talking about human rights in Hong Kong, should be talking about in Saudi Arabia, nope, and should be talking about problem. in China. Okay. And not my problem is the problem right now. <laughs> not my problem. I believe that's part of the problem right now. You said it, it, you, you said it perfectly, Jamath. People don't care about human rights anymore. There's a large group of people, I agree with you, who do not care about human rights the way no, no, we I did th I think previously. they care about the local version okay, of great. human rights. Fine. Yeah. And I think you need to care about all of them and talk about all of them at the same time. The international adventurism around human rights, I don't support in the least. And I, I do I feel that a lot of, of this stuff is like the tip of the spear of people who then get morally absolute and say, we have to fix this. And the only solution is to invade these countries. And instead, I would just rather them, if they really care about it, let them stand up and do what they need to do. I think we need to fix our own backyard. I mean, look, not to kind of bolster Chamath's point, but there is a blind eye turned to that which we don't want to believe or that narrative which we don't want to sell. And then we point towards the narrative that we do. And we see this all the time where the focal point of where should we be addressing human rights issues is where we have economic and geopolitical interests. No one seems to be solving the problem in Somalia. No one's getting on stage talking about the issues that people are facing in countries outside of where we have deep rooted trade partnerships <laughs> and serious economic interests. And so, you know, like we can tell ourselves all day long that we need to be kind of be absolutists and absolutely take care of the world because we're the, the, the beacon for human rights. But the challenge is we end up being forced to choose where we want to spend our time and our resources. And our resources go to where those resources flow back to us. And that's often where we have a geopolitical and economic interest. Now, Jason, and, and, and just sorry, I'll, say, I'll say one more thing, like, just because it's important, J-Cal, because you, you called us all out. I, I, I am an absolute human rightist in the sense that I believe every human on Earth should have a right to do whatever they want within their own sphere of influence, provided their sphere of influence does not intersect with the sphere of influence of others. End of story. And I don't see that happening anywhere on Earth. And this ends up being a trade-off. You always end up trading off your sphere of influence for that of the greater good or someone else because power allocates and power aggregates to specific places, often to government, 
sometimes to organize societal decisions that we say we're going to trade off our individual rights and freedoms for that of the greater collective. And it is that judgment and it is that gray area where all of these issues that we individually choose to address and spend our time on arise. And so I have, um, you know, j- just to point out like a very absolute point of view on this. But to me, the challenge is how do you make a discernment? How do you make a determination that imprisonment of brown and black people in the United States versus the treatment of people by um, uh, militia in Somalia versus the treatment of the Uyghurs in China versus, you know, and, and you go on and on and on. It's a very difficult moral judgment. Or you could just say they're all wrong. They are all wrong. They right. are all wrong, and but I don't care about the other them, two. And we're going to talk, well. See, but you work on all of them, you work on none of them. And I would rather see innovation enable more people to have access to more free speech, to have more resources, to have more of an ability to climb and have the freedom to do the things they want to do with their life. I think that innovation and technology can bring all of these old school ways of thinking and behaving out of the medi- medieval ages and the dark ages. And so that's where I choose to spend my time. You know, how can we unleash people's freedom? We got to make things more available. We got to make things more accessible. I just want to make two points and then maybe we can move on on this topic. Point number one is when you're an immigrant, part of what you're doing is you're actually voting against the place that you leave to embrace the place that you come to. And Jason, you know, of all the four of us on this pod, you're the only natural born American, right? You, you started here. You've lived your entire life here. And that's an incredible blessing that you were given. And the three of us weren't. And, you know, in my case, I had to go through an even more circuitous path. I didn't even come to the United States first. I had to go through Canada. But implicitly, you know, when I look at the places that I left, and specifically, you know, when I look about when I look at Sri Lanka, who, you know, has a very checkered human rights record, in fact, terrible in some ways, and the way that they ended the war against the Tamils, atrocious. I have to make a decision right? I have to make a decision about is this something that I'm going to wade into or not. And what I've realized through my own life's journey is these are not my battles. And in many ways, I abdicated my responsibility to vote on that issue when I left. And instead, I stay here and I focus on the things that I can control here. And I think that I do have a responsibility to fix the issues of the country that adopted me. And so that's where some of my framework comes from. Separately, I do want to give all three of us a shout out because I do think that there is an enormous human rights issue that I do think we did bring up and in the last few weeks has become a real groundswell and it started on the you know year and recap pod where we talked about what's happened to our kids and I just want to call out that in the last few weeks the amount of press attention that this issue has gotten which I do think is a human rights level issue which is a cognitive impairment of our children has really come front and center and uh, I think that it's really, really incredible all the way to like even nature now publishing these, you know, and, I, and maybe the timing is just coincidental, but these big longitudinal studies that really show that, you know, we have uh, driven a level of retardation in our children. We have held them back from uh, a level of learning and development that we now have thrown our arms up in the air. We don't know what the real long-term impact is. That I think is a human rights level issue. And domestically in the United States, I think we're in a position to fix it if we decide to take care of it. So, you know, again, I don't mean to offend you when I say that in my prioritization list, it's below the line, but there are different human rights issues that I care about. And I and think to just to be clear, I know, you know, when you said I called everybody out here, I- I'm trying to have a productive discussion. Freeberg, I'm not trying to put him in a spot. I don't get offended. 
I'm not well, no, I'm trying to have a productive discourse. I don't get offended at anything. Here. I'm, I'm okay, okay. <laughs> but I want to make it clear that I'm, I'm not trying to call out besties here. I'm trying to have a productive dialogue about human rights. Would you take money rights. from Prince Alawid? He's like one of the largest investors in the world. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. You know, I would like not. He's a Saudi investor. Yeah, he's a, he's a Saudi investor. So if they're and the just money a citizen of Saudi. Of, of Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't If the take money, money from comes them? from a dictatorship, from an authoritarian country, I would 100% well, no, Jason, would not Jason, he was it. locked up. He was locked up at the Ritz and he was yes, forced I, to I, give I, a bunch of his money. So it wasn't clear. does he mostly live out of the country anyway? I mean, like. It, again, if his money, if you're asking me, uh, uh, let's put it aside of a specific person. I'll just tell you my, my well, philosophy. He's a citizen or a former citizen of that country. He was born there, J. Cal. Yeah, I, I agree. Let me just tell you. I Clearly, I would never take money from an authoritarian regime. Would you take Saudis, money from a Chinese billionaire? No. I would not take it from a Chinese. No, I would not take it from a Chinese. If I, if I, uh, well, no. they're not an authoritarian regime. They, they, the Chinese made their are money. not an authoritarian no, 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 regime. No, 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 we're talking about a Chinese billionaire. If the Chinese billionaire was outspoken about human, I, I would tell you, it's a great thought question. <laughs> and I'm just riffing here. It's a great thought experiment. If a Chinese billionaire had left China and was would you in take Chamath's money? Because Chamath has violated your human rights at the poker table many times. <laughs> Man, that's true. That's true. He has. He has turned over two seven, going all in. When yeah. I have two pair, and I'm like, I guess he's got a set. And yeah. He just absolutely tortures me. Yeah. So, but no, I would not. I would if, if the person was a reformer. Yes, I would consider it. I would consider it, Jason. But Jason, I guess what you're saying is like you, and this is your decision to make. My decision, yes. It's it's important for you that you understand what people's personal belief systems are when you take money from them. No, human rights is important to me. Right, that's what I'm saying. My their personal belief system, like you know, you you well, wouldn't care less if they here. were an illicit drug user, right? For somebody else. So, for example, I'll give you an example. So. I did take money from a Chinese billionaire when I when I first started social remember, capital. Yeah. I'm not going to say who it is. No, nope, no need. But there was a, a a morality clause, and there were certain things that were incredibly important to this person, and they were very easy for me to reflect because they were nothing that I cared about. But you know, they explicitly didn't want certain kinds of investments. In, well, there's gambling, uh, cannabis, sex, porn. Well, for me, yeah, the list was gambling, alcohol, can. Anyway, my point is. You're fine signing up to those moral judgments from an investor. Am I? But not necessarily, you know, silence on, I'm, I'm asking you the question. You would okay. be fine signing up for those moral, for moral delineation of what you can and can't do, even if it's not against what you believe, but you have a different issue when it comes to silence on these other topics. Yeah, I would, uh, here's, here's how I'll, I'll answer the question. I, if I'm taking other people's money to invest it and they don't want to invest in the adult, I don't have a problem with. Uh, cannabis as an example i don't have a problem with wagering and gambling but if i'm building a fund to invest in businesses those are that, that's not an important issue for me and i don't know that's a great venture investment and i can also invest outside of it my own money so it's a more nuanced issue there like i i have invested in wagering apps and i'm thinking about creating a syndicate specifically for gambling and and wagering and yes there are lps who i currently have in my previous fund the active fund that do not i do not invest in wagering because of that so yes and they, it's because they just want clarity in some cases on not getting sued for investing in a in a in a wagering companies where we don't have a federal mandate yet. So, you know, I think comparing it's, it's these are great thought experiments. You know, my, important discussions I was, to have. I was fine signing up everything for me. I was fine signing up for no alcohol because my father was an alcoholic, and so yeah. it was it was more aligned. And there was a certain investor who at one point tried to be an LP, very well-known person who uh, was convicted of domestic abuse. 
and I didn't take that money because I was I had been the victim of domestic abuse as my as as my mom. Yep. And so that was a moral issue for me. The point I'm trying to make to you, Jason, is that it's very nuanced. Everybody can be on a yes. bunch of different sides of this thing. And I tend to think the most consistent, reliable thing is that these are very local beliefs. That when they touch you, you have a point of view on them. And I and I think that, you know, it's much more practical, and maybe this is just being too practical, to see a world where people want to fix their own backyard first. And the and I think a lot of why you may be disappointed that a lot of people don't have a stronger view on things like China is people are a little exhausted with having moral views about things that are so far away when things in their own backyard are so broken. Yeah, and, and I can understand that exhaustion. And to be clear, I just feel like human rights is such an obvious and easy one to get behind for all humans. And that From really your perspective. Was what, and that's what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was about, was we were hoping that all countries in the United Nations, or Eleanor Roosevelt was, that we could all just agree that torture was immoral. And when the United States waterboarded but people the United and States Bush can't came even up agree with some, whether the death penalty is immoral. So right. I mean, and you know what, that's something that, you know, is our great failing. So and we're we need to work we're on riddled that. with hypocrisy. The Declaration of Human Rights here is is an ideal. It's a goal. It's something to strive towards. And each country has places where they succeed and fail, and you can actually measure it. And we do measure it. Actually, we do measure which countries have the worst record on human rights violations and which ones have the best. I think the these States quantifiable the scores are crazy. No, no, they're not. You can literally talk, look at how many women are raped in prison in one country versus I another. I understand, how many people but are my tortured. point is, when you put a score to that or count it, you're not counting a bunch of other things that are really bad as well. Yeah, the scoring system could be refined. Sure, I will give you that. And I think uh, it, this is the debate we had today, which was an unexpected debate, and I, I didn't think we would go this deeper. I think is such an important debate for us to have as humans and as a civilization because we are getting in the weeds on so many other issues whether it's inflation or you know it, uh, innovation or politics that human rights i feel is something we should all be able to agree on that all people should be it's able the definition to definition that's jcal everyone says yes the definition and the prioritization is where all the noise sits yeah that's that's everything and how do we deal with violence? there's no one on earth that's going to say i don't believe in human rights well, right. no, no. Communi- we all agree with the, the ideals. The everyone, agrees, everyone agrees with the ideals. The question Not is how you implement them. <laughs> Implementation, prioritization, definition. Exactly. Like yeah. for, for example, Maybe in the I West think, we do. I think it's I think it's a legitimate position for you to say that you're not going to take money from dictators. But to then say that any family office from any individual who was born in that country, you're not going to take their money either. I would have to think about it. I didn't say that. Unless, I said I would unless have to they, think unless about they, it. Unless they're willing to risk their lives by denouncing their own government. Well, I don't know that they have like- to do it. I don't know they have to do it publicly. I mean, if I talk to this hypothetical Chinese or Saudi person and they said, I don't agree with this, I'm working against, I'm a reformer, I, I guess I would have to consider it because no, 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 but, you would but want what if to they make said money nothing. for the reformer. But Jason, what if they said, I don't have a point of view? Then I would go with people who um, Would you morally disqualify them? You would disqualify well, them on moral grounds. That's uh, not they, the way to make allies, J. Cal, which is important. Well, no, no, you're not letting so, me So answer. look, look. Hold, I think, on, you, yeah. hold on. I need to answer it if you're both going to ask me this question and accuse me of, you know, this. I would have to make a nuanced decision on an individual basis. I would not make a blanket decision. That's my position on this hypothetical situation where somebody is a Saudi citizen, has a family office. I would have to make a very nuanced decision like you did, Chamath, where you didn't take the domestic abusers. And you did take the person. Well, that was an American, but I took the Chinese. Okay, yeah, but it's the same thing. It's a human rights violation. It's it's a horrible thing that occurred, and you had to make a nuanced decision. And you know, that's what I'm hoping to promote here. 
is that we have a dialogue about human rights again. Because when I was growing up in the 80s, this was something that the world was getting consensus on, and the West had consensus on. And I think the West is very weak now. And the fact that the NBA, that, you know, Apple, whatever companies, I don't want to call out individuals, because it's not productive, uh, especially if it gets reaggregated. And, you know, I happen to know some of them. It, it's, it's something that the West has to contend with of what is our strategy here with human rights violators? Do we engage them? Do we uh, admonish them? Or, or somewhere in between? Do we disengage, engage, or, you know, make our feelings heard and try to shape their behavior to bend towards human rights? And I, it's a very complicated, nuanced discussion. I'm glad we had it here today. The time period you're talking about where we supposedly had consensus on this during you said the 1980s during the Cold War. I was talking about it in America. Yeah. Okay. Well, America. We, we talked about it a lot in America is my point. Yeah. Well, I think, actually, I think Ronald Reagan did a really good job with this. He denounced the Incredible. evil empire, but said that we should be a shining city on a hill. And we did, yes. we actually avoided a bunch of unnecessary foreign wars. 100%. So look, I think the best way for us to lead on this issue is just to be an example. And we're not doing a very good job of that. I mean, 100% your agree. ideals are great, but the world doesn't neatly line up with those ideals and presents us with choices that don't fit those ideals. I mean, during the Cold War, we had a choice to support either communist regimes or in a lot of cases, authoritarian regimes. And we chose the lesser of two evils. I think today we have choices between do we want to support Islamic fundamentalist regimes or we want to support authoritarian regimes who are resisting it? I mean, those are the types of tough choices the world actually presents to us. And I think that's what makes it hard to, to sort of to, my to stick to these ideals. My enemy is my friend. It's a right. complicated chessboard, and you're better at chess than me, Sack, so I will give you that. And I think it's great that we had this discussion. I really do appreciate that you guys were willing to talk about this for so long. It's an important discussion because if we don't stand for human rights and basic human rights, what do we stand for? You know, and, and I agree that domestic is important. I stand for, I stand for me. Yeah, we know that. We know that. <laughs> Tell us about the sweater. Tell us about the sweater. No candle uh, today. No, this is just you know, Jay Cal, if you're no concerned candle. about the rise of authoritarianism, which actually this was my, one of my big trends in the prediction episodes. Uh, or, I am concerned. Democracy yeah, which is was the stalled. most negative trend. But then I think you should be concerned about this like rising tide we have here of censorship and the surveillance 100% state. I care about it. Yes. I'm in agreement. And our federal law enforcement agencies demanding more and more powers. And lockdowns. And lockdowns. And I'm, in agreement on those. Liberties. I'm in agreement Instead on those. Instead of blowing this whole like January 6th thing out of proportion, you should be concerned about their attempts to exploit and use that to demand more powers to surveil and prosecute American citizens. I do, I do not believe in surveillance. What I, I and, and I think but you, you should hold... understand that the hysteria created around that event is going to be used. It's going to be exploited Possibly. to demand uh, these yeah, powers. I, I, uh, politicians are exploiting this on all sides of the aisle. I agree with you. The right and the left. The right is diminishing it. The left is exacerbating it. The truth in the middle is, I think we are in agreement, Sachs. The overwhelming majority of people who went to the Capitol that day were dipshits who just wanted to protest and they cared about Trump and they went there for the party of it all. And then there was a small cohort who intended harm and who are deranged and who could potentially be dangerous in the way Chamath framed it, lone wolves or small packs of wolves like the Oklahoma City bombers who murdered a large number of people. Um, and so we have so, to be very look, careful in, in prosecuting one group one way and one the other way. And that's exactly what the Department of Justice has done in that case. 700 people got pled deals or very minor sentences. And then these folks are going to have the book thrown at them. And rightfully so because they could have murdered Pence or they could have murdered Pelosi just like that woman got murdered. I'm sorry, the woman tragically got stopped and shot and died. 
Like that could have been a much different day. If dozens of people had died, and those cops had not shown restraint, we could be sitting here having a much different discussion about the Oath Keepers. If the Oath Keepers had done what the Oklahoma City bombers succeeded in doing, this would be a much different discussion. Right, they didn't, which is why it is a different discussion. Well, thank God for our police and and for how brave they were in not unloading their pistols when (laughs) any reasonable person who was being beaten by that crowd and crushed would have taken their gun out and started firing. They didn't. Thank God those police did not start okay, firing. Good. Look, I, I think the one thing we can agree on is we don't want something like that to happen again. And there's two things, two simple things that would prevent it. One is reform of the, the Electoral Count Act, like we talked about. That's what Biden should be going for, not making these speeches about Bull Connor and George Wallace. He could actually get that done. And the other thing is, if the Capitol Police had just been a little bit more prepared and had barricades and screens of better security, that also couldn't have, it couldn't happen again. That's all we have to do to solve that problem. Well, no, of January the third 6th. thing we have to do is arrest these oath keepers and put them in jail for That's what happened. they did. That's yeah. happened. Well, it's no, they've been indicted. <laughs> you tell me if they're going to go to jail. They'll or not. convict them of something. Yeah. Well, and rightfully so. It seems. Well, they, hopefully, they get their day in court. Maybe we can transition. I want to talk about the other side of the coin on inflation because I think that we have hammered the point for a long time now that. You know, the government was really Slow. sort of like off pieced by printing incompetent trillions and trillions of dollars and, and injecting it into the economy. And what it's really created has been uh, this massive bout of inflation, which then could cause an ultimate recession because the Fed has to react. All of those things, I think, are well documented. I just wanted to put on the record the a little element of the counterfactual, which I think is really important. And this is an article in the Wall Street Journal, and Nick, you can post this if you can, please. But I'm just going to read this, so I'm just going to look down. The first two rounds of stimulus payments lifted 11.7 million people in America out of poverty, according to the Census Bureau. Americans built up $2.7 trillion in extra savings, and some expect that combined with rising wages to, prov- to provide them with lasting stability despite the return to more normal spending patterns and rising inflation. So I just want to make sure that all of us have heard that because that's an incredible thing to be able to say that 11.7 million Americans in poverty are no longer in poverty because of the stimulus, which I think when you look at the right way of framing what some of these progressives want to do, I think a lot of the good intentions comes from things like this. And I just think it's important to acknowledge that that did happen. And that's something that we should really be proud of. And especially if those folks can actually stay in the lower middle and then move up to the middle class. That's an incredible outcome. And, you know, we we all supported that, I think, genuinely. And I think that that's good. We knew it was scary. and We needed to put something into the economy to keep it from crashing. And it's very hard to know what, what the right amount was, right, Shamath? Like, how do you know what the right amount of stimulus is in a pandemic that happens every 100 years? Uh, and thank God it feels like Omicron is, you know, leading us out of this. Okay. Yeah, there's some great examples, by the way, in this article, if you guys, if people want to take the time to read it, of some examples of people that have really done an incredible job in um, in like completely changing their financial picture, which I think. Well, is I mean, amazing. a lot of comp- a lot of people went into freelance. A lot of these young people realized. I don't know if you saw this headline. A million less people uh, started college this year and enrolled. And I think what's happening is so many people who were going into college realized, I don't know if I should go into debt. I figured out a way to make money at home. I'm more financially literate. I'm going to make a better decision about college and not go 100k into debt. Well, to I be think very it's specific, made people very resilient. And they're being better, making better judgments about their own lives because they've been forced to. To be specific, I think you mean boys, because the other thing that's happening is in colleges now, it's becoming very tilted 
uh, female versus male, especially in some degrees. colleges, in some colleges, it's, you know, two thirds female, one third yeah. male. So 65, we were actually creating this weird longitudinal pattern here, where uh, an, an entire gender is going to be very miseducated relative to another one. And in fact, it's, it'll be the exact opposite of what it was like in probably the 50s or 60s, where you yeah. had these large swaths of men that are educated women who typically stayed home, or were undereducated relative to their ability. Here now, it's the exact opposite, where Slingshot. you know women are getting undergrads and graduate degrees, and boys are learning how to play video games and smoke pot. Incels, a very strange time. I mean, that's what happens when you do. David's, what is that like? Yeah, being an incel. <laughs> Tell us, you were a pioneer in being an incel. We made it through the show, so it was so civil. Let's get the Friedberg ratio up. Let's talk about an exciting scientific paper and the implications of it. Let's go to it. science, boy. <laughs> Tell us about this new study from Harvard that revealed Epstein-Barr virus could be associated with MS. I'll do a zoom out, then a zoom in. Yes, so please. So bear, bear with me for a moment. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are over 80 what are called autoimmune diseases. These are diseases where your body, your immune system attacks your own tissue and causes real problems. One in 20 people worldwide suffer from some sort of autoimmune condition. So Crohn's disease, lupus, which affects, you know, your whole system. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, where your joints get inflamed, Sjogren's syndrome, where your eyes and your mouth get, get messed up, and, and multiple sclerosis, which we'll talk about here in a second. But these are all diseases that have a similar ideology, which is that your immune system attacks some tissue in your body. It, it, it dysfunctions and it attacks it. And there's always been this big question about kind of what causes autoimmune conditions and what causes immune system dysregulation like this. And there's all sorts of different theories and studies and papers, many of which have been you know, well, well documented genetic risk factors, environmental factors, age, and in particular, as you get older, the thymus, which is supposed to create these helper cells that go out and keep cells in your immune system from attacking your own body, your thymus kind of starts to fade away, and, or sorry, your thalamus starts to fade away and start, start, stop working. And so, um, you know, one theory that's been talked about a lot is molecular mimicry, which means that there's some protein from a virus or that enters your body or cancer. And that protein looks a lot like some other protein in your body. And so your immune system starts attacking that protein. And as a result, your immune system gets turned on to that protein. And it actually attacks a similar looking protein somewhere else in your body. Um, and that's a, you know, a very kind of broad statement about, you know, some potential cause of autoimmune conditions. And you can find protein mimicry theories coming from the gut, uh, where, you know, microbes in the gut are triggering this. And then also viruses, so in particular, you know, cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus, which is what we're going to talk about here today. So multiple sclerosis is this disease, one of the autoimmune diseases, where your immune system attacks and destroys myelin, which is, you know, found on um, your nerve cells and in your brain. And it can actually cause, you know, when, when this happens and your immune system starts to attack your brain, you end up with these lesions and, and really debilitating effects over time. One in 300 people in the US have been diagnosed with MS. It is a brutal disease. It, it lasts your whole life. Uh, and the treatment today, the primary treatment is this drug that destroys B cells in your body. And your B cells make antibodies. And so by destroying the B cells, it gets rid of the cells that are making the antibodies that are attacking your own brain. And, uh, and this is a really effective treatment. It's been able to reduce the effects of MS significantly. But we still don't know what causes it and what triggers MS. And there's always been this theory, going back to the, the, the mimicry question, that one of these viruses that everyone seems to get as they, you know, age is causing it. 
Um, and so Epstein-Barr virus has always been thought to be one of those viruses. It's one of the herpes viruses. Uh, everyone knows it as mono. So, you know, you get mono and you get um, swollen neck. A lot of people do. Most people that get this virus don't end up having any symptoms. They don't even know they have it. And here's a crazy statistic. 95% of people have Epstein-Barr virus. Um, and it's known that Epstein-Barr virus does actually cause some kinds of cancers and lympho uh, lymphoma and so on. So here's the paper that was published yesterday. And again, if you know that Epstein-Barr virus, you know, is, is doing some other stuff in your body that's negative, shouldn't this be a reason to look at it for MS? But how do you get the data to do it, given that 95% of people already have Epstein-Barr virus? So here's what happened. These guys at Harvard went to the military, the US military, and the US military basically had 10 million members of the military take 62 million blood samples over a period of time from 1993 to 2013. And when they take these blood samples, they, you know, they run their typical checkup on these people, on the military members, but they save some of the blood sample in a freezer. And so they've got 62 million blood samples sitting in freezers, uh, the US military does. And so these researchers were able to access those blood samples. And they then found 5% of the people that don't have Epstein-Barr virus. Because remember, 95% of people have it. So they found the 5% that don't. And they went through and they found that during this period of time that they have all this blood data for, they were able to identify 800 people that started out Epstein-Barr virus negative and then got MS. 100% of the people that got MS were infected with Epstein-Barr virus during this period of time. And for the group of people that, um, that didn't get MS, only about half of them uh, got Epstein-Barr virus infection during this period of time. And then they looked at this for about 20 other viruses and basically showed absolutely no correlation or difference in risk between all the other viruses if you got MS or didn't get MS. And so it basically creates a 95% probability that you're 32 times more likely to get um, MS from Epstein-Barr virus than from anything else. It is from a racially diverse pool, an age-diverse pool, ethnically diverse pool. So a lot of other you know, confounding factors like race or ethnicity or genetics, a lot of other factors like all the other viruses that might be causing MS have been excluded. And it shows that maybe Epstein-Barr virus is the primary cause of MS that triggers certain people's immune systems to go nuts and attack the brain. And it's interesting because, you know, Epstein-Barr virus has a bunch of proteins in it that look like other human proteins. So it makes sense why this might happen. Um, MS costs 40 grand a year. There's $30 billion a year spent in the US on MS care. So if we can go in and get Epstein-Barr virus eliminated from the human body, it would be an incredibly incredible cost saving and a therapeutic benefit to people with MS. You should talk about the reason why we don't have a herpes vaccine though. So HSV-1, 2, 3, now 4, none of these things have reasonable vaccines and it's for a very specific reason, which is that the herpes virus itself is incredibly, incredibly difficult to isolate and find until it activates and it hides itself and it nests itself inside these nerve cells. So you may want to just talk about how yeah, complicated so it is to produce it. I mean, the vaccine. DNA disappears into these nerve cells. And so it's hard to get, a, a, you know, immune system to go and clear them out permanently. Uh, the Epstein-Barr virus hides out in B cells in your body. And so it's floating around in your body forever. And as your B cells replicate, the virus replicates with them. And then when your immune system starts to get weak, the virus pops out and starts attacking and inflaming your body again. So number one, Epstein-Barr virus has never been a great target, a therapeutic target, because there's not much money to be made, because it's like, who the hell cares about mono? Once you get mono, you get over it, you're fine. 
But if Epstein-Barr virus is in fact causing this problem with, with MS, there's a reason to go after it, a lot of money to go after it. And there are several new technologies and therapeutic strategies that are possible, one of which is, you know, Chabot sent out uh, over our group text, a company that's doing T-cell therapies, where you can actually program a T-cell, and the T-cell goes into the body and finds these, uh, these B-cells with Epstein-Barr virus and wipes them out. Um, there's a steroid, a diuretic steroid uh, that's been shown that, that's used to treat high blood pressure that's been shown to stop Epstein-Barr virus from leaving cells. There's an antiviral drug made by Takeda called Maribavir, which has been shown to have high efficacy in eliminating Epstein-Barr virus. So there are now therapeutic strategies that are being actively explored that could unlock the potential of minimizing or eliminating Epstein-Barr virus for a broader population than we ever thought should be taking these therapies. Because the implications may be that if you can stop Epstein-Barr virus from replicating or eliminate it from your body, you can stop all these follow-on diseases that occur over time in your life that are super debilitating and costly. Yeah, lupus is another one lupus, tied, yeah. to, tied to herpes simplex 4. I think the, the, the real problem is going to be that two-thirds of the adult population under the age of 55 have herpes simplex 4. So, you know, you're literally talking about inoculating the entire world. And when we start to think about that grand of a scale, there's a cost issue, there's a manufacturability issue, and then there's an ROI issue that, that unfortunately will be adjudicated. And it, that to me is what really, you know, stands out. And that, and that, and that is that just the healthcare economics of it. Obviously, the science of it is still really complicated. Aren't we doing an mRNA uh, vaccine for Epstein-Barr? And how would that play into this? Absolutely. So there's a lot of techniques. This is, you know, T cell therapeutics, mRNA, uh, a, a chemotherapy type drug, a steroid drug, an antiviral drug. So um, every um, modality for therapeutics uh, has some candidate or candidates for Epstein-Barr virus. Um, and so, you know, there may be a bunch of ways that you start to identify risk factors and that you give someone one particular therapy that might be really affordable, like this antiviral may be super affordable, you know, if we could make it for five cents a pill, you could, you know, get it out to a lot of people prophylactically that are at high risk. You know, if there's a, a group that actually is active with MS, a good treatment may be to try and give them the T cell therapy and see if that helps. And so that's the clinical trials that will start now. Because if you can give people a T cell therapy and eliminate EBV and, and stop all future need for MS treatment, that'll save 40 grand a year, it'll start to make sense to run clinical studies to see if that stuff's possible and is worth doing. Uh, so it opens up a whole new kind of area of interest. Now, th by the way, this isn't novel, people have been talking about this for a long time. But this paper has such incredible data and such strong signal that it's really gonna it's really gonna catalyze investment if we didn't have the big data based on the study we would not have gotten here for once on the show i will say thank god for the u.s government and all of the 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 data that they've you know all of these blood samples that they, they kept in for freezers i want to get your read on the the human transplant thing that we saw this week where a genetically modified pig heart was in implanted into a 57 jason you want a 57 year old man you want to read that out oh yeah just... david bennett a 57 year old man requested special emergency authorization for the experimental surgery from the fda fda he was dying and unable to receive a human heart transplant the surgery was performed on january 7th uh in baltimore and um yeah, this happened as the u.s is facing a major organ shortage I mean, we have we have hundreds of thousands, I mean, of people on organ donor registries, uh, or needing a transplant, you know, my father, 
was on a kidney transplant registry for eight years until he passed away. Uh, these things are just brutalizing for the individuals and the family around it. And so like, you know, all of a sudden, if you can see a path where you can um, genetically modify uh, other sources of organs and implant them without organ rejection into the human body, that's like, that is, that's mind, it's mind blowing. Here's what's really important. It's not just about the availability of these things, but it's about turning off one of the biggest, the, the, the big risk factor of organ transplant is um, rejection, meaning you're putting all this foreign matter into your body. It's foreign proteins. And so when your immune system sees all those foreign proteins, your body goes haywire and tries to kill it. It's like this, there's all, it's like imagine getting a billion viruses at once. And so there's all these new proteins. And so one of the interesting things you can do, you know, if, if you can grow these, uh, these organs, uh, and, and alter the genetics of the cells that are being used to grow the organs is you can get those cells to match your own or, uh, to basically downregulate all of the proteins that might be triggering, uh, immune rejection in your body. So theoretically, you could grow JCal's heart with tissue and cells that match your DNA potentially and match your protein structure perfectly. And such, if such Sachs that, ha had a heart, you could do it with him too. Right, there you go. Good transition. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, but and by the way, there, there may also be a path here where we grow these, uh, these organs uh, with your DNA without even using the animal body, uh, the, enti the entirety of the rest of the animal to do so. So there's a lot of really interesting uh, breakthroughs that are possible, but but it's really great to see a highlighted, um, you know, non, you know, kind of transplanted organ from another body into the human body. Because it just, again, it, it opens up what people have been talking about for decades, which is the possibility of this, now that we have gene editing and potentially have the ability to grow biological matter in bioreactors it's it's going to be it's going to be tremendous jake what did you think about the democratic person in the sec saying that they wanted to basically make the uh accredited investor laws even stricter that's incredibly infuriating uh you that know, was your big prediction yeah i mean we really have to get these laws i mean i think this is like a theranos um or we work overreaction which is like oh my god there are some bad private companies if you take the number of bad private companies uh, and then look at what is happening in the country with people wagering on sports and wagering on crypto uh, slash investing, depending on we you know how you look at it. We need to have one rule for the road, which is people take a test, they get accredited, and then they can do what they want with their money. The equivalent of what I'm suggesting, people can only invest a fraction of the money they have on their last two years tax returns. Let's pick a number, 5% of their to your average on their tax returns 10% whatever you want to pick, and they have to take a test would the would be the equivalent of people having to take a three hour course and a you know, I don't know 50 question test to go to Vegas and play blackjack. And they could only put on the blackjack table 10% of their total average yearly income for their household in the past year. You think about how crazy that would be to tell an American, you got to take a blackjack course and pass a blackjack test and understand the odds of poker or whatever to play that game. And you can only put if you made $50,000 on hours last years, you can only bet 5000 in Vegas at any one time. That's the max chips you can buy in a year. Those are the two things I'm advocating for in private company investing. And that's really if we want to have people move from, you know, poor to middle class from middle class to affluent in this country, there has to be equity participation. And equity participation has to start early. Look at what happened with all these young people betting on crypto, betting on stocks or stonks, 
and, uh, you know, doing puts and calls and all kinds of crazy things, you know, in public markets, we would really rather see those people, or at least in addition, be able to invest on LinkedIn if they were uh, a recruiter in year two, or they were an Uber driver, be able to buy Uber shares, or if they were an Airbnb host, be able to buy Airbnb shares as a private company. It will change the entire uh, complexion of upward mobility in the United States. And and we really have to keep educating people, not limiting their upside. That's my personal belief. Person who asked you the question stopped paying attention like five minutes ago. Oh, because we were talking about <laughs> science and hearts? No, about- Jamath asked you a simple question like 15 minutes ago and like you just been- That was a 90 second monologue. Oh, it was? That's for Henry oh, okay. Belcaster. By the way, I got inside information on Saks. <laughs> What's that? You know how Saks started like doing a little bit of artistic direction? You know, he's got that Scorsese in him having done the award-winning film, Thank You for Smoking, and he, he got Henry Belcaster on his team. You, you know the TikTok guys? TikTok guys I've are been making some suggestions. Lightly suggesting. Saks has been directing. Not directing. TikTok superfan saying, hey, you might want to make a TikTok out of this monologue no, I did. Here's, here's what happened. Oh, is okay, okay. Some, there, there's <laughs> a quote of a segment that somebody liked. They retweeted it. It got a whole bunch of likes. And ah. so I sent it to the TikTok guy and said, this might okay. make a good talk. All right. Yeah, nobody else is doing that, but okay. Okay, well, go for it. <laughs> I'm not editing, but I'm... Lightly suggesting, J.K.L. <laughs> <Busted> again. <laughs> people do think that you have Tucker Carlson's writers writing for you because of because my joke. Because you say it and people don't know but that you're joking. But to be joking. clear, I, that is a joke. You do not have Tucker Carlson's current writers writing for you. There may be some- I do admit I have a special writing team for Rose. You do? I Just mean, for Rose. <laughs> but do you, do, you, do you keep them on retainer? Like if you have a Rose, like you can just ask them to punch up some stuff for you or- yeah. I've only done it twice. I did it for you, for your roast, J. Cal, and I did it for Phil Helmus roast. We destroyed Phil. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do you remember Actually, my this joke? this is hysterical. Oh, my God. This was the cheapest roast ever. They rented, like, a junior suite that they got for free at some It wasn't cheap rented. Hotel. Yeah, they got it for free. They got it for free. They had, like, 30 people in a room, and they were like, oh, you got to come out for Phil's roast. It was, like, 30 people in a junior suite at, like, a B-level hotel. <laughs> it's so- and it was so bad. And Sax and I came in and we had absolutely a no allegiance to the audience. I lost so, so much money that afternoon. we destroyed everybody. You guys were out of control. It was brutal. Oh, uh, here's the helmet roast. I got, I got the material right oh, here. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, my God. But to be sure, these aren't our jokes. This is what a Comedy Central writer wrote. So we have, well, okay, we do not so, endorse these. No. What, well, okay. So if you want I mean, to understand said them, how I yeah. work. So they basically put together some material and then I shape it. There's like some back and forth. It's a, it's back, not like, a workshop. You workshop. Yeah, we workshop it. Yeah. Go ahead. It begins. We're here tonight to roast the poker player known as the greatest. Unfortunately, Phil Ivey wasn't available. So we settled for Phil Helmuth. Hey-o. In the poker world, Phil is known as a poker brat. The rest of the world just calls him asshole. Hey-o. <laughs> <laughs> Phil has mastered the GTO strategy of playing poker. For most players, GTO stands for Game Theory Optimal, but in Phil's case, it stands for Grading Toxic and Obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) Despite all this, uh, Phil fancies himself a quote-unquote poker ambassador. Not to throw a damper on things, but calling Phil an ambassador for poker is like calling Bill Cosby an ambassador for Quaaludes. Oh, oh my God. Oh, no. You cut that one. Oh, that's not. That's That's too. That's so good. Let's face it, Phil is nuts. He's the only poker player sponsored by lithium. 
<laughs> Fill the man silence the poker table so he can hear the voices in his head. <laughs> so good. When Phil was inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame, they retired his straight jacket. <laughs> now That's Phil he's is doing what? Because <laughs> he's mentally ill, everybody. He's he's deranged. Now Phil is doing what all people in crisis do: write self help books. <laughs> it's called so positivity. Good. Which is ironic because the only thing Phil has ever tested positive for is narcissistic personality disorder. (laughs) 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 So good. This inspirational tome is a whopping 84 pages. Oprah has taken inspirational shits bigger than this. How bad is Phil's book? On Amazon, it says people who enjoyed this book also enjoyed pounding their dick with a meat tenderizer. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh your your bunch of guys are good all right everybody hope you enjoyed sax's uh, excerpt from the phil helmuth narcissist roast and we'll catch you next week on Love the all in podcast that's bye episode bye. 64 bye bye we'll let your winners ride rain man david sax source it to the fans and they've just gone crazy with it. Love you, West. Ice Queen of Besties are back.